Thank you, Izzy. Friends, we're continuing today in this series we're calling Dare to Dance Again. And so I should tell you, I've been reflecting on this a bit as we've continued using this thematic image throughout these weeks. It's occurred to me that dancing requires a fair amount of courage. It also occurs to me that I should tell you that I am no good at dancing. I'm reminded of this every time somebody gets married and they invite me to join them at the reception afterward when they pull out all the good food, which I love to eat because I'm very good at eating food, and then they start playing music, which I enjoy a little bit less because I'm very bad at dancing. And there's this funny thing that happens at most weddings. The music starts and hardly anyone goes out on the dance floor. Maybe the couple goes out and does a first dance. Maybe there's a mother, son, father, daughter type of dance. And then there's more music. And those folks who really know how to dance get out there. And they do little swirls and twirls and dips and things. And the rest of us sit back with our food, our full stomachs, and just enjoy watching those who know what they're doing dance. But then, more often than not, the DJ pulls a little something on us. After all of these good dancing songs comes on the chicken dance or the YMCA or something that everyone knows the words and the motions to. And all of a sudden, everyone wants to get up and dance. And those of us who don't know how to dance still try to hang back, but nobody ever seems to let you do that when the chicken dance is happening or the Macarena or anything else. There's this mass movement to get out onto the dance floor. And when we all get out there, when we take that risk, because it is a risk for those of us who don't know what we're doing to be on a dance floor, it turns out to be a rather fun place to be, a little electric and energetic, as we're all doing something together, some of us poorly, some of us well, but enjoying the experience of being together, dancing, rejoicing, living, having a great time. This series is called Dare to Dance Again. It comes out of this idea that we are a people, as a people of faith who have hope and resilience that can dance and rejoice after difficult things, and we've been through our fair share. But I've been starting to wonder, as we've been working through these scriptures, if maybe I missed an opportunity to call this Dare to Dance Together. For in fact, as we go from Easter to Pentecost, there is this movement from something difficult, the death of Jesus into resurrection and the celebration that comes. But there's also a movement that the scriptures trace, and as we have been following, of the church being birthed in the world where it goes from Jesus and 12 disciples and a few more women outside of that, the close inside group of followers that suddenly expands and grows to include more and more. There is an invitation, a reaching out, a pulling of others into this great dance that the church does. This is the movement of the birth of the church and perhaps of the life of the church in all the years since. The Holy Spirit working the turntables, and inviting us all onto the dance floor. And today, we have a passage when there is one more person, just one, invited onto the floor to dance, to become a part of the movement of the church. But it is one important person. And so we turn to the story from Acts. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. 
I think you can tell a lot about how we understand a scripture passage based on the name we give it. It doesn't really seem like that important a matter. Usually it's just a few words of description slid onto the page to show where one story stops and the next begins. And yet it can frame our understanding of the text in ways we can hardly anticipate. There's another scripture, a passage from the Gospels when Jesus goes to the temple to teach but is interrupted by a group who are dragging in a woman that they say was caught committing adultery, insisting that the law of Moses gives them the right to stone her to death. Wouldn't you agree, Jesus? Oftentimes this passage is named something like the woman caught in adultery. But I heard it suggested once that that passage might be better referred to as the men caught about to throw stones. That changes things a bit. Today's passage from the 8th chapter of the book of Acts is traditionally named the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. It's accurate, if a bit narrow, and so I have crafted a few alternate options we might consider. First, there's a funny thing happened on the way to Gaza. It's descriptive, but mysterious, leaves you wondering a little bit about what might have happened, draws you into the story. Or perhaps we could title it, The Meddling Machinations of the Holy Spirit because I'm a bit of a sucker for alliteration, but also the Holy Spirit is the driving character in this story, and so that seems important to recognize right there in the title. Or how to hitchhike the Christian way. I mean, how else do you describe getting a ride from a passing carriage and using that opportunity to talk about Jesus? Or there's Philip's brief seminar on Old Testament interpretation. The story does, after all, make a rather large turn when Philip proclaims the gospel, the good news of Jesus through a passage from the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Or we might want to call it the baptizing and bailing of Philip. It's not the most important part of the story, and one we won't come back to because I have no idea what to do with it, but there is something absolutely wild about the ending when Philip baptizes this guy and then comes out of the water and disappears. Or perhaps we could call it... You know what? I don't have my pages in order here. There we are. The bane of all church strategy experts. This is easily the least descriptive, but also might be the most interesting to explore. The book of Acts as a whole describes the birth of the Christian church and the years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. It's actually a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's written by the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and so it's best seen as a continuation of the same story. The gospel account follows Jesus from his birth and traces his ministry as a path going from Bethlehem towards Jerusalem, where Jesus is crucified and then resurrected. And the book of Acts takes up this storyline, beginning in Jerusalem, but then makes the opposite movement, moving away from the city, tracing how the good news of the gospel of the resurrection of Christ reaches out from Jerusalem in every direction. As Jesus tells his disciples in the first chapter of the book of Acts before ascending into heaven, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The book of Acts is the story of how the good news is spread and the church is born in marvelous and inspiring ways. And near the start, Acts tells of the day of Pentecost and how Peter's preaching on that day brought 3,000 people to faith to join the church community that began that day. And church strategy experts have sought to duplicate those results and the continuing wild growth of the early church 
ever since, writing more than a few books that I have read and enjoyed, each one filled with methods and approaches for creating this expansive growth. But I'm not sure any of the church strategy experts would recommend doing what Philip does here in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. Philip flaunts all conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom which might suggest far less drastic efforts with a higher potential return for the burgeoning church community. And the church was in a delicate position, limited resources and an overwhelming mission in its very early days. Surely it was the time then to reach out to the masses, to those who were closest to the faith and most likely to get on board with little to no effort. I mean, solitary individuals could be reached later when things were more stable. Surely, it was time then to connect with the people who would fit in immediately because they were those most like the ones who had already come through the doors. I mean, space could be made for other people later. But Philip rejects this convention and takes an incredible risk, walking heedlessly into the desert, not even sure who he might find if he was going to find anyone. And sure, an angel of the Lord told him to go there, but it's still risky. Following the Holy Spirit is usually risky. Philip has no idea where he's going or why, just when to leave and what direction to go. Now, it's an 80-mile path from Jerusalem to Gaza, and all he knows is to keep walking south. He doesn't know where on the path he's headed or if he's supposed to go the whole way. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do when he gets to wherever it is that he's going. Just go south on this desolate desert road. And to make things worse, he's sent off at noon. No one in a desert climate would ever choose to start what might be an 80-mile journey in the hottest part of the day. And so Philip could certainly expect to be the only one Foolish enough to risk life and limb under the blistering sun that day. It was an incredible risk. And still he goes. He goes and somehow he meets another traveler on his way home from Jerusalem in a carriage. And the Holy Spirit sends Philip to run alongside the carriage where he hears the occupant of the carriage reading the prophet Isaiah. Reading aloud because that's how they did it. In that day. And Philip shouts in and says, Do you really understand what you're reading? And the man asks back, Without someone to guide me, how could I? We who have read scriptures on our own can attest to the importance of a guide. All of us who come to the text want to know more than just what it says, we want to know what it means, what it means about God and about us, what it means for us trying to live faithful lives today. And as much as we wish we could understand Scripture plainly on its face, as much as we wish we could take in the words without the challenge of needing to interpret them, we know what the writer in the carriage knew. It's a more challenging task than that. And so Philip steps in, explains how Isaiah wrote something that had meaning long before Jesus was born and has meaning now that Jesus has lived and died and been resurrected. How the story of God has long pointed toward the good news that the church was now tasked with sharing to the ends of the earth. And then suddenly, there is water in the desert. Look, the writer said to Philip, water, what would keep me from being baptized? 
and it's not an idle question. It's not an idle question because there is much that might keep him from being baptized. It suddenly becomes important that this rider was introduced to us not with a name. He is never given a name, just a string of adjectives all presented at once in the Greek. A man, Ethiopian, eunuch, official. He is outside of the faith and outside of the church in about every way that he could be. And even his presence on the road that day attests to his outsider status because he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, but likely had not been granted entrance to the temple. He was outside of the nation and the people of Israel. He was ethnically a minority according to Philip's worldview, and he was a sexual minority the world around, having been castrated and made a eunuch at a young age. He could not change himself to become anyone else. He could not change any of these things about him. And yet, there were scriptures that seemed to limit this man's participation in faith. One in particular from Deuteronomy that said that any man with crushed or severed genitalia cannot fully belong to God's people. There is scripture that could have stood in the way. What would keep me from being baptized, the man asked. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip had said. And the man said back to him, how can I without someone to guide me? And suddenly Philip's method of understanding and interpreting Scripture becomes important not just to share, but to live. Who is guiding whom? Who guides each of us in our understanding of the text and how we use it and how we live it. There is water there alongside the desert road which could not have begged for a baptism any more perfectly than if the Holy Spirit had planted it there, which may well have been the case. It would be a risky thing, baptizing this man. Following the Holy Spirit usually is risky. Philip may well have paused and offered up reasons not to continue. Maybe he should talk to the church leaders in Jerusalem first to determine their official position on the issue. Maybe they should wait a few years or centuries until the church could be more fully established. This could be a controversial baptism. The entrance of this man to the faith in the church could cause division in the church he wanted to enter. Maybe Philip should say no. Maybe Philip should say, not yet, not right now, we'll see. But instead, Philip steps out of the carriage and into the water without a word. Scribes in all of the years since have sometimes tried to give Philip some words. Read this passage in most Bibles and you will find a footnote with a verse that was later added to give the carriage rider a chance to confess his faith. It would seem that some have thought there was something that could prevent his baptism. But I'm reminded here of a story that I love about an ancient biblical manuscript that we have today written in Greek with a single word in one of the epistles, one of the letters that was written and then changed and then changed back with a note added in the margin hundreds of years ago by a scribe which said, fool and knave trying to fix the text. Sometimes the scriptures we encounter are challenging or difficult. But we might remember 
that we are not to understand them on their face, that we are to wrestle them and wrestle with them, that we are to seek out guides and the work of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit was at work, leading Philip there and into the carriage and to the water. The Holy Spirit was at work, and nothing would stop this man's entrance into the church of God through baptism. And so it was a few chapters later in Isaiah, further than the man in the carriage may have read, that Isaiah, the prophet of God, exhorted the people of God, do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For eunuch who could not have any children of his own would often have been seen as a dry tree there to grow and to die the end of a line. But the story of God and the people of God and the church of God has always been to bring us together into a family to ensure that we are living and growing together. I am the vine, Jesus said to his disciples once, and you are the branches, branches that are tended by the gardener, pruned and moved in ways to ensure that we flourish and are fruitful. Those which are not, that do not want to be moved, that are too afraid to risk reaching out into the empty space, are sometimes cut off and thrown away. Because the gardener is hard at work ensuring that the vine and its branches reach out to embrace a trellis or perhaps the world. What would keep me from being baptized? The rider of the carriage asked to the man the Holy Spirit had sent his way. Sometimes this passage is called the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. To be converted is to turn from one position to another. And perhaps there is an argument to be made that the man who went to Jerusalem seeking God and the people of God had a conversion of a sort. Perhaps there is also an argument to be made that Philip had a conversion of another sort. From one position and understanding to another, as he came around to listen to the Holy Spirit answering the question, what would keep this beloved child of God from being counted in the family of God? There is an argument to be made, perhaps, that is a conversion of the entire church. That through the proclamation of a good question, through the movements of the Holy Spirit, for those who are willing to risk a bit, that the church understood what it was, and who it was for. What it meant to be fruitful and to flourish. To love as Jesus had loved. To count all people as children of God. Do you understand what you are reading? How can I? Unless there is someone to guide me. Thanks be. Friends, as we continue in worship, I invite you to stand in body or in spirit as we sing.